This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here what? we go. Oh, the podcast at Assuming America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, February 1st, 2021, people. I hope everybody had a great weekend. And I hope you guys handled no football better than I did. I mean, it was very weird waking up on Sunday morning, not feeling like you got to rush to the TV, watch a bunch of football, eat a bunch of food, drink a bunch of, you know, adult beverages. But hey, one football game left. Uh, it's called the Super Bowl. You may have heard of it. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later in the week. But in the meantime, it also means that College Hoops is really ramping up here over the next couple weeks and months into March and April. And it also means that this show is going to really ramp up. And so a lot to talk about from the College Hoops scene from the weekend. We will open with... I'll tell you this, right? We'll, we'll open with the fact that I've spent a ton of time talking about Duke and Kentucky, how bad they are. Well, two other elite programs have entered that conversation. They've entered the chat. Kansas, Michigan State, both stink for completely different reasons. We'll talk about them, specifically Kansas, because I think they are a very fascinating case, even if they're in slightly better position than Duke, Kentucky, and Michigan State this year. I think bigger picture, there's concerns. We will then transition to the Big 12 SEC Challenge, talk about Mac McClung in Texas Tech. We'll talk about Mike White in Florida. We'll talk about uh, you know Alabama, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Arkansas, things like that. And we will wrap with what I actually think is kind of a really important topic, uh, conference tournaments. I don't think enough people are talking about what is going on behind the scenes. And I do think there's a reality that conference tournaments are not going to look the way that we look, that we expect them to look. And I do wonder if there's a possibility that many of the top teams in college basketball opt out of conference tournaments. We're going to talk about all that. But before that, let's get started. Before we do, I want to remind everybody, as I always say, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you are following also on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. 
If you have any questions, Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com. I should mention as well, the YouTube page really blown up. As I've said before, there is some exclusive content from this show that maybe doesn't make every episode that goes up on that YouTube page. So make sure you're subscribed and following there. And finally, uh, as I said, make sure if you're not, uh, if you have any questions, Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. And with that said, people, there is no more time to waste. Uh, And as I said, um, you know, look, this is a national college sports show, right? And as such, it's my job to kind of cover the single biggest topics in college football, in college basketball uh, throughout the, the calendar year, frankly, right? And so obviously we talked a lot of football in the fall. And then as we transition to basketball, it does seem like largely the conversation about college basketball has been sucked up by two different very interesting topics. Gonzaga and Baylor being really, really, really good. Duke and Kentucky being really, really, really bad. And it feels like every episode I've talked about Duke, every episode I've talked about Kentucky. uh, But over the course of the weekend, I, I do think there were two teams that really kind of jumped into the conversation, as I said, joined the text, joined the, the, the group chat of, we're a really proud program, and we really kind of stink right now. The first was Kansas, the second was Michigan State, and we'll get into Michigan State in a minute, because I do think their problems are a little bit more like Kentucky's and Duke's, whereas Kansas is a completely different problem altogether, and I think it's a problem that portends to bigger picture issues for this program going forward, all stemming from the FBI stuff. But before we get into that, just kind of some context for people who weren't in front of their TV all day on Saturday. Um, Kansas went to Tennessee and got absolutely annihilated. And this is, for the record, a very good Tennessee team, but also a Tennessee that in its own right was struggling. We're going to talk about Tennessee in a minute, but they came into this one having lost two of their last three games. And even even the game that they won was against Mississippi State, and that was kind of a grind it out, drag them down, knock them out fight. So for Tennessee to just crush Kansas and look like the significantly better team, maybe it speaks to Tennessee turning a corner, but it also speaks to the fact that Kansas isn't very good right now. With the loss, Kansas has now lost four of their last five games. Their only win in that stretch was against TCU, Uh, and by the way, they had 18 points in that game, but they're really, really, really struggling. And I think it's funny, I was going to actually talk about Kansas' struggles last week, and then the whole Blue Blood conversation happened with Villanova fans, so it got pushed to the side. But I think you can make a legitimate case that Kansas is like the sixth or seventh best teams in the Big 12 right now. When you look at the Big 12, first of all, Kansas sitting there at 11-6 and six overall, 5-4 and four in the conference standings. I know the Tennessee loss didn't count towards the conference standings, but this is a program that's trending in the right direction. And you look at the rest of that league, We know Baylor and Texas are significantly better than Kansas right now. We know that Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, while historically they haven't been on Kansas' level, they've both beat Kansas in recent weeks. We know Texas Tech is rolling. And we know West Virginia is playing pretty well, even though they lost to Florida. And so maybe you can make the argument that Kansas is a little bit better than West Virginia right now. They ain't better than Baylor, though. They ain't better than Texas right now. I know they beat Texas Tech earlier this year. They ain't better than Texas Tech right now. And they just lost to Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. And so you're talking about a program that at best is 5th, 6th, 7th in their conference. And I will say in defense of Kansas, before we get into what's wrong, can it get fixed, and why I think this program is absolutely headed in the wrong direction, it is worth noting that unlike Duke, unlike Michigan State, unlike Kentucky, they are still in position to make the NCAA tournament, right? Like, like they still 
have an 11-6 record overall. They still have some quality wins from the early season. Most of them happened in December and early January, whether it was the Kentucky game in the Champions Classic, the Creighton game in the uh, Gavit games, early early wins, excuse me, in the Big 12 against West Virginia and Texas Tech. But it doesn't change the fact that right now this team is not very good. And so when I look at this team, again, Their goal, just like at Kentucky and Duke, is not to make the NCAA tournament. It's to win once you get there. So I think while this team will make the NCAA tournament, there are still some bigger picture issues, and so let's get into them. You know, first of all, there are the -the on-the-court basketball issues, and when I I look at this team, um, you know, there are things that they're just not doing well right now, right? First and foremost, they are not rebounding the ball at any kind of clip that you need to win at the highest level. Got out-rebounded by 15 against Kansas, Got or against Tennessee, excuse me. They got out rebounded by ten against Oklahoma. You're not going to win games against good teams when you're getting out rebounded by 10, 15 rebounds. They're also not shooting the ball very well. Six of twenty-one from three against Tennessee is not going to get the job done. Let alone when you're talking about a team that shot thirty-seven uh, percent from the field, and a lot of those shots came late when the game was already out of hand. Again. 18 first-half points against TCU, 26 first-half points against Tennessee, a 14-point deficit at halftime against Tennessee. That is not going to get the job done against good teams. So I think that there are like the the little issues. But then there's the big-picture issue, which is that if you watch this Kansas team, it just doesn't look like a vintage Kansas team. And so because of that, it kind of got me thinking, like, I just don't think this team is very good. And I think we can say one thing definitively. I think we can say that the FBI probe and the recruiting impact that it had is absolutely finally having an impact on Kansas. And I'm not saying you should feel sorry for Bill Self. We'll talk about, you know, the long-term big-picture ramifications in a minute. Not saying anybody should throw a pity party for Bill Self. But I think the, the, the FBI probe has finally caught up with them in terms of just the talent that they have on this roster. And so I went to actually look it up. And I will give somebody credit. Jeff Goodman has actually already done the, the, the legwork, but the, the stats and figures about Kansas's recruiting are largely reflected in what is going on right now, and it's directly correlating to what is going on on the court for Kansas. So Jeff Goodman went back a number of years and looked at Kansas's recruiting rankings and their number of elite recruits in each class. And what I'll do is I'll go year by year just to kind of emphasize how bad it's gotten, how quickly. And I'll say that, you know, I think top 50 prospects are important because those are the guys that that can come into college and have a major impact. If it's not as a one and done in a second, third year, those are the guys that win you basketball games. Right. Others, you know, there are schools that can can recruit top 150 kids and turn them into stars, but not everybody can. You want the elite players if you can get them. And for a long time, you know, it's pre-FBI, Kansas was doing it. 2013, that was the Andrew Wiggins, Joel Embiid year. Five top 50 prospects that they signed. 2014, the following year, three top 50 prospects that they signed, including Devontae Graham, who is now having a very successful NBA career. 2015, two top 50 prospects signed. 2016, two top 50 prospects signed. 2017, three of the top 55 signed, and the 2017 class is important to note because it was the last class that signed before any of the FBI stuff came out, right? FBI stuff starts to come out in the fall of 2017 into 2018, 
and it didn't really impact Kansas's recruiting in the 2018 class, where they signed three top 50 kids, including Devon Dotson, who was essentially an All-American last year, Quentin Grimes, who was awesome but then ended up transferring, and David McCormick, who is actually still in the program. But 2018 is where you kind of see the drop-off, right? Once you get to 2018, it ain't pretty. 2019 class, zero top 50 prospects. And then the 2020 class, which is the current freshman class, how about this? Just one top 150 prospect, and that was a kid named Bryce Thompson, and he only committed to Kansas because his dad played for Bill Self in, in college years ago. And so you look at Kansas's problems, it directly correlates to their junior and senior classes, or their sophomore and junior classes, excuse me, which is where the bulk of success comes in college basketball, being caught up kind of post-FBI, and then there were no elite freshmen because they were all afraid to sign with Kansas in this high school class of 2020 as we knew things were ramping up. And so you look at this Kansas team now, it shouldn't be a surprise that this team is struggling. There are simply teams in this conference and certainly in college basketball that are more talented than them. You look at their team right now, here is what you need to know. Of their top scorers this year for the University of Kansas, leading scorer Ochai Abaji, who I actually think Bill Self has done a good job developing, he was ranked the 132nd ranked player in his recruiting class coming out of high school. Bill Self has actually done a good job developing him. I'm not here to just tear down Bill Self, you know, without any rhyme or reason. Ochai Abaji is going to be an NBA player, but he still was ranked 132nd ranked player in his high school class. Second leading scorer, Jalen Wilson, 53rd ranked player in his high school class. He only ends up at Kansas because John Beeline, Jalen Wilson was supposed to go to Michigan. John Beeline leaves for the NBA. He's looking for a new home. He ends up at Kansas and he's coming off a major knee injury. David McCormick, part of that last high school class that was, uh, you know, not really impacted by the FBI probe. Um, And then you have a bunch of other guys that really were not very highly ranked recruits. And so I think when you look at it, it directly correlates to why Kansas is struggling. They just don't have the talent that not only Kansas traditionally has, but oh, by the way, the rest of the Big 12 has. And so when I look at it in the big picture, I don't know how this gets any better. And I will say this. First of all, as far as, like like I said a minute ago, I know nobody's throwing any pity parties for Bill Self, and I don't think we should make any excuses for him. I actually think, to a degree, to his credit, he overachieved early in the season, but I do think uh, what, what he is accused of and what his staff is accused of doing is finally coming full circle. Never forget, there was a report that came out this weekend from The Athletic that we now have more documentation that one of the assistant coaches admitted knowing that a recruit Uh, got some money when it came to their recruitment. He wasn't even talking about a Kansas player, but the bottom line is it's no secret that based on what we know, based on what came out in those FBI trials, there was some stuff involved involving Kansas, and it has hurt their recruiting. Now, I'll say about Bill Self what I say about Sean Miller and Will Wade. I am not going to definitively get up here and say he needs to be fired. He needs to go. Let's wait till all the facts come out, but the bottom line is it ain't looking pretty. And so when I look at this Kansas situation – This isn't about a weird year or a COVID year or starts and stops to the season or players missing time because of COVID. This is a, the FBI probe hits in 2017, 2018, you sign a great class. And then right after that, there's a big drop off. And here's the scary part. If you're a Kansas fan, I don't know how it gets better. 2021 class, I went ahead and looked it up. They have two players signed. One is ranked the 39th ranked player in the country and he's from Kansas. 
And then he got the 71st-ranked player in the country. Um, and, you know, he's another guy that's probably going to be a project. And so when you look at what's going on, how does it get better? Because you're not bringing in those elite high school prospects anymore. Your recruiting has been hurt. Um, and unless you just strike gold in the transfer portal with a bunch of kids that just want to play at Kansas, I don't know how this gets better. I would say on top of that, even if you do strike gold, guess what? Bill Self is a guy historically that you need to be in his program for two, three, four years before you develop into the player that you're capable of being. But when I look at Kansas, when I look at where they're at now, when I look at how they're recruiting, I don't see how it gets better, especially when you factor in the Big 12 ain't slowing down, man. Baylor is awesome and bringing in the best recruiting class that they ever have. Texas Tech, Chris Beard, I think he's a magician at how he gets these transfers to buy in and have success right away. Not only Mac McClung this year, but a couple years ago, Matt Mooney, Tariq Owens led him to a Final Four. Texas, for at least one year, is recruiting well. Oklahoma is even Steven. They never drop off. And so if you're Kansas, I don't think it gets better. Now, they're going to make the NCAA tournament. They're not on the outside looking in like some of these other blue blood and elite programs. But I'm just telling you right now, flat out, I don't think this gets better. I don't think it happens anytime soon. All right, let's transition to the other team from the Champions Classic. And it was funny, right? I was watching Michigan State on Sunday. They played against Ohio State, and I had this bright, brilliant idea. I thought I was the smartest guy in the world. I was watching, and I said, you know what? They stink. Kansas stinks. We just talked about them. Duke and Kentucky stink. The NCAA should just do the complete money grab and just put them in the first four of this year's NCAA tournament. Kentucky, Kansas, Duke, and Michigan State, four historically relevant teams that aren't very good this year. And then I realized, oh, wait a second. That's just the Champions Classic that was already played and was really bad, and none of us want to watch it again. But anyway, Michigan State, I do want to talk about them because I do think they're an interesting scenario, um, and I don't think that they're the same as Kansas. Obviously, they were not involved in the FBI stuff. They are a different team, and I think they're struggling for different reasons, but they are relevant, and here's why. Because they lost to Ohio State on Sunday. Final score, 79-62. to Score wasn't even close to that in terms of uh, how competitive the game was. And with the loss, they fall to 8-6 and six overall. And how about this? They are now 2-6 and six in the Big Ten and in second to last place. They are ranked 13th out of 14 teams in the Big Ten this year. That blew my mind. I knew they were struggling. I didn't know they were 13th out of 14 teams in the Big Ten. Part of it is they've just played fewer games than people. So like Penn State has played more games. And because of it, well, I guess they've only played one more game. Because of it, there are teams that have played more games, have, haven't had a shutdown like Michigan State, and so yes, they have had more opportunities to pick up wins, but what I'm trying to tell you is it's really dire for Michigan State, and they are inching closer and closer to missing the NCAA tournament, and I want to talk about them because one, I haven't. Two, they've actually played twice since the last time that I recorded this podcast, and it was actually worse the last time they played. Don't know if you saw, they lost 67-37 to to Rutgers. Yes, you heard that correctly. They scored 37 points. And then, of course, they lost on Sunday in a game that, one, Ohio State is good, and two, the 17-point deficit does not sound good, but I'm telling you, it never felt that close. Ohio State got up. They didn't even play well down the stretch and still cruised to a victory, and it just hit me. Michigan State is in that Duke-Kentucky conversation of they're just not very good right now, and they're going in the wrong direction. They might miss the NCAA tournament, and so what's going wrong? Why? It's different than Kansas. Let's talk about it. First of all, you know, 
I think that they are struggling simply because of the fact they lost some really good players, right? And I know nobody feels sympathy for a Kansas, Michigan State, Villanova, Virginia, Texas Tech, whoever, Kentucky, Duke, when they lose good players, but I do think that is important. You lose maybe the best point guard in your program's history, not named Magic Johnson or Mateen Cleaves last year, Cassius Winston, first-team All-American, um, and you lose Xavier Tillman, who was an early second-round pick, to to the Memphis Grizzlies, two of the best players in your program, two guys that were truly elite at the college level, and there's no replacing them. And not only is there no replacing them, but I think they are what they did and what they brought to the program is a large part of why Michigan State is struggling. First of all, you look at Michigan State coming into the year, there was kind of questions of, do they have a point guard? Is there a guy to set everything up? Cassius Winston was so great at that, and largely they have struggled in that regard. They have a young point guard-ish type kid named Rocket Watts who played off the ball last year with Cassius Winston, was a great sixth man. He's averaging nine points and three assists, but he's not really a point guard, and they're trying to make him a point guard, and he was better off the ball last year, and you look at his stats toward the end of the year, they're essentially the exact same as they were a year ago. Last year finished with nine points, two and a half rebounds, 1.7 assists. This year, uh, nine points, two rebounds, three and a half assists, but also more turnovers. So he's not really a point guard. Aaron Henry, who's probably their best overall player, is not really a point guard. And so you have that as a problem. The other problem is they just can't score. They just can't shoot specifically. And when you look at the numbers, they back it up. Most notably, the last two games, 28% from three against Rutgers, or 28% from the field against Rutgers. Not going to beat anybody shooting 28%. Four of 20 from three. Sunday, it was only slightly better. 32% from the field, 21% from three. Not going to get the job done. Going to be a problem. And I think when you look at those two problems, you don't really have a point guard. You don't shoot the ball well. I think they correlate, right? I I don't want to spend a ton of time just breaking down X's and O's with Michigan State. You know that's not what the show is about. But I do think when you watch them, they have a lot of the same problems that Kentucky has right now and that Duke has largely had throughout the season in that they have trouble kind of getting into an offense. They have trouble getting into the lane, creating for others, getting open shots, and it shows with the shooting percentages, with the turnover percentages, 14 turnovers per game. That's not going to get the job done against anybody. But I also think that Michigan State has been, like so many other teams in college basketball, I do think the COVID stuff is real with Michigan State, right? And I will say this. I've been thinking a lot about it. I've criticized John Calipari a ton on this show, right? I've criticized Coach K a ton on this show. Some of the Coach K stuff was for off-the-court stuff. But the more that I look at this, the more that I realize all of these programs essentially have the same problem. They've had to start, they've had to stop, they've had players in, they've had players out, and all of the problems are basically across the board the same for all of these elite programs that have new rosters, that have new players in the program that weren't there last year. Michigan State, Tom Izzo said in the broadcast, he has never been this late in the season and has no idea what his rotation is. Guess who that sounds like? Duke. Guess who that sounds like? Kentucky. Uh, he also said, um, you know, that... that, that um, Beyond that, there's the, the guys aren't used to playing together. And that's when it hit me, right? Because one of the things I try to do is I always try to contextualize things on this show. I don't always have the answers. I don't know. You know, everyone thinks, oh, all, all Taurus does is hot takes. But as I always say, there are excuses and there are reasons. 
And I do think when you look at a program like Michigan State, I am not making excuses for them. I'm not making excuses for Duke, for Kentucky, for these teams struggling. But I do think there are reasons for a team like Michigan State to struggle. Another interesting thing that came out of the broadcast on CBS on, I guess it was Sunday afternoon, of Michigan State's 15 players, 13 of them have had COVID. Tom Izzo, for the record, had COVID. And when and it kind of just hit me, right? I've been talking about the impact of COVID, start, stop, all that stuff over the last couple months. I don't think it hit me how crazy it is, how much it would impact a program to have that many guys miss that much time until I actually heard Tom Izzo say, and by the way, I don't know if he broke any HIPAA laws by talking about it, but 13 or 15 guys, just think about that. Just think about trying to put together a team in basketball where chemistry and knowing each other and having um, continuity is so important when 13 of your 15 guys have missed time because of COVID. It's unbelievable. Think about it. You want to start, a couple guys are missing time. Then you, then you get them back and a couple more guys miss time. And then you get those guys back and a couple more guys miss time. And then the guys that were out early, they're just getting used to the new guys and then the new guys have to leave. Beyond that, think about also the fact that Every time that somebody tests positive, there's probably a couple guys that are out with contact tracing. The fact that the coaching staff was out. And so when I look at a Michigan State, it's no wonder they have no continuity. It's no wonder they struggle to create offense in the half court. It's no wonder that they are struggling the way that they are. It's because they haven't basically had their whole team all year. Not an excuse, but a reason. And I do think in the bigger picture, it's going to be something fascinating to follow with all of these teams. But as it pertains to Michigan State specifically, I just think it's going to be fascinating going forward because it's kind of like the Kansas deal, right? Kansas, like, I think Kansas has enough gas in the tank to get it figured out for this year. I don't think they can get it figured out in the bigger picture. But I think it's the opposite for Michigan State. I don't know that they got enough gas in the tank for this year. They're currently at 8-6 and six overall and 2-6 and six in the Big Ten. And you look at the rest of their schedule, there are some winnable games. They do play at home against Penn State and at home against Nebraska in two of their next three. But they also have two games against Iowa, including one on Tuesday. Two games, uh, excuse me, one game against Michigan, one game at Purdue, who already beat them, and one game at Indiana. And so you're talking about a scenario where they got about seven or eight games left, and they're eight and six overall. And even if they win three, the, the three that they're supposed to, Penn State, Nebraska, and Maryland, that gets them to 11 and six. But, I mean, they're still going to have to beat some teams that so far they have not shown that they are capable of beating, whether it is uh, Iowa, whether it is Michigan, maybe Purdue, who they had success against before they blew the lead late. But I look at this Michigan State team, man, and it reminds me an awful lot of Duke and of Kentucky. I just don't know if they have enough in the tank for this year to get to the NCAA tournament where we just expect them to be uh, and if they don't, I think a lot of it, I, you know, I, I don't try to make excuses for people, but I do think part of it would be COVID-related with the start and stop. 13 of 15 players at Michigan have tested positive for COVID. I can't even imagine what it's like to try to run practices, to try to run meetings, to try to run five-on-five five when you have that many guys missing that much time. All right, let's get into the rest of the weekend in college hoops. And frankly, most of the rest of the show is going to be on the Big 12 SEC Challenge. I'll hit on conference tournaments at the end, but I do want to focus on the Big 12 SEC. And what I really want to say, uh, before we even get into the games, I don't know if I mentioned this on the last episode, but I really actually like this event. Uh, And I actually give ESPN, uh, for the record, I don't work for ESPN, have never worked for ESPN, 
But I give them a ton of credit because I really like the setup of this thing, right? I think it comes at a good time for college basketball. It needs a spotlight. And then beyond that, um, I think that, it, that it's a good showcase for these schools, programs, and conferences where the games are generally held that weekend between the AFC and NFC championship game. I think that if we're being perfectly blunt, even the fans, it's kind of a grind of being in conference play. And so to step out, to challenge yourself, to have the opportunity to play a team from another conference, I think that's a big deal. I think that's an important deal. And I think it's a cool deal. And I think we saw that this weekend. A lot of good games. We'll get it. We already kind of talked about Kansas. We'll talk a little bit about Tennessee in a minute. Bummer that Texas, Kentucky couldn't happen. Uh, We'll talk about Oklahoma, Arkansas, or Oklahoma State, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Alabama momentarily. I do want to start with what I thought was by far the best game of the event, and that was Texas Tech LSU. And it's really interesting because I think both these teams coming in, uh, were coming even coming into the season, were two teams that I thought okay. They have the prerequisites to make deep tournament runs to a potential Final Four, potential Elite Eight. Does it come together? Does it work out? I don't know, but the talent is there. And we saw, I thought, the best version of both of those teams on Saturday. LSU ends up blowing just an insane lead. They were up nine point or seven points, excuse me, with under a minute to go. And they end up losing 76-71. They end up losing by five. So to reiterate, down up seven with under a minute to go, they lose by five. So not only is it a crippling, devastating loss and a major, just you, you completely fell apart, but on top of that, it was also an awful beat for people who bet on LSU. They were plus three and a half, which basically means all they had to do was lose by less than four. They end up losing, but that's not really the story of the game. And what the story of the game was is this. It was the continued emergence of Mac McClung. If you watch this game, this kid was a stud. Back-to-back threes in the final minute, including one off a long rebound where he sprints to the corner, gets a bucket. Um, and then in what was ended up being the go-ahead play on defense, the go-ahead score, he tips the ball to a teammate, which leads to what was the go-ahead score. Texas Tech never gave up the lead. Um And when I think about Mac McClung and I think about who he is and where he's at and how far he's come, I just want to say this. I owe the kid an apology. I also owe Mike White an apology, by the way, which I'll talk about momentarily. But I owe Mac McClung an apology, and here is why. I did not think that he is capable of doing what he is doing at Texas Tech. And frankly, I've been very critical of him over the course of his college career. For those of you who don't know a ton about Mac McClung, he is Texas Tech's star player. He began his career at Georgetown. And listen, I'm just going to say it. I don't think it's a secret if you watch him. He's a short little white kid with crazy hops, okay? And he kind of started his career at Georgetown as essentially this YouTube star, this guy that just did all these crazy dunks and all this flashy stuff. And he was really fun to watch, and he scored a lot of points. But if you watched him at Georgetown, he really struggled. And he wasn't very good. And at times, he actually flat out uh, hurt them because he was a very low-efficiency player. And so when he transferred, when he decided to transfer, the process went like this. He ended up declaring for the NBA draft, essentially was told by the NBA, go go back to college, You you ain't good enough to play in the NBA, and decided to transfer. And when he decided to transfer, the reason he decided to transfer, or at least the one that he said publicly, was very simply, the NBA wants me to turn into a point guard, to transition into being more of a point guard, and I don't believe I can do that at Georgetown. And I came on this show... And I was very critical of the kid. I kind of just said, look, if you really want to be a point guard, 
then go back to Georgetown because everything revolves around you and everything is about you and you can still get your stats and, and, and transition to a point guard. If you want to be a point guard, you don't need to tra- transfer to another college, get in the gym and get better. And as a matter of fact, when he committed to Texas Tech, I took it a step further. You want to be a point guard, why are you going to a school with all these talented players and with multiple point guards on the roster? And so I said, listen, you're a gunner, you're a shooter, that's all you do. If you want to be a point guard, get in the gym, stay at Georgetown, be the focal point of what they do, and get better. And to, and so I was critical of the kid, and to a degree, I don't even necessarily think I was wrong early because a lot of those tendencies that he had early in his career at Georgetown came up early on at Texas Tech in the Big 12. I went back and looked it up just to make sure he was not a very efficient player early in the season. And it's kind of funny because I talked to Chris Beard a little bit in the offseason for a story I was working on. And I remember talking to Chris Beard and Chris Beard was like, look, we love him. We think he's a really talented kid, but we have to work on decision making, shot selection, things like that. Because even Chris Beard knew like, you know, this kid is really talented, but he doesn't always make the best decisions. It's too much about him sometimes. And those are my words, not Chris Beard's, but it's too much about him. And we need to work on that decision making. And in my defense, we saw that early. Texas Tech was not very good early. They weren't necessarily bad, but they weren't good. But you go through the box scores and watch the games, and I watch the games. Mac McClung, here are a couple of his stat lines from late December, early January. One for 11 versus Abilene Christian. Two for 10 versus Texas A&M Corpus Christi. Five for 16 versus Kansas. Five for 14 versus Oklahoma. So the guy that I told you last summer that he would be, he was really for most of the, the early part of the season. But in a credit to him, in a credit to the coaching staff, in a discredit to me, apparently it turns out Chris Beard knows more than basketball about basketball than me, surprise, surprise. But in a credit um, to both the coaching staff and the player, he's been a completely different player the last two or three weeks. He's been way more efficient. And I think his teammates buy into him being the star of the team, a superstar in college basketball, and the guy that can get them over the top, potentially to the NCAA tournament. Not only to the NCAA tournament, excuse me, but for a deep run to the NCAA tournament. And I noticed this change a few weeks ago. If you remember, Mac McClung hit that buzzer beater against uh, Texas, against University of Texas. It wasn't a buzzer beater, but it was a game-winning shot with a couple seconds left. And his teammates went crazy, and they mobbed him, and they held him in the air, and it was the biggest deal, and it was huge for Texas Tech, and it was, I believe, their first win ever over a top-five opponent on the road. But when I saw his teammates' reactions, I said, you know what, not only was I wrong about this guy, but his teammates clearly like playing with him. And I'm not going to lie, I, I, you know, my, my intern and my buddy Austin, you know, like I text him all the time, and early in the season I was not saying some very nice things about Mac McClung. But it was at that moment that I realized, you know what, whether I like him or not, whether I would personally enjoy playing with him or not, the kid is beloved by his teammates. And so that was kind of a jumping off point to what we've seen the last few weeks. And I know Texas Tech hasn't been perfect, and they lost to Baylor, and they lost, a, they blew a 12-point lead of their own against West Virginia. But against LSU on Saturday, we got the full Mac McClung experience. And like I said, he made big plays down the stretch. He basically single-handedly won him a game. He hit a three. When they were down seven, he hit a three to cut the lead to four. Then Texas Tech gets the ball back, missed shot, 
He catches a rebound, sprints to the corner, hits a three again. Uh, and finally, on top of that, the next possession tips the ball to a teammate. LSU has the ball. He gets his hand in there, tips it to a teammate, leads to uh, a layup, which gave Texas Tech the lead, and they did not end up giving up that lead. And so when I look at Texas Tech in the big picture, again, I know they haven't been perfect the last few weeks, but you talk about a team that I think is on the outside of kind of the big picture conversation of, you know, we spend so much time talking Gonzaga and Baylor and Villanova and Michigan. You look at this team and this program, um, I think they're a team that's kind of on the outside of that conversation that I think they can make a deep run. I think they can go to a Final Four. Can they win a national championship? I don't know if they're quite that good, but I don't think they're that far behind those three, four, five teams that I mentioned, and it's because of this kid, Mac McClung. He has emerged as a star. He has emerged as the, the heart and soul of that team. He's tough as nails, and as I said, the kid is just a baller, right? I have, so much, I, I have earned so much respect for him because he's changed his style of play. He still gets his buckets. He still scores, but it's more in the flow of offense, but he also is the guy that gives this team confidence, gives this team swagger, uh, and does what <laughs> needs to be done to get his team wins. So I give him credit. He's been phenomenal. I think right now he's the front runner for Big 12 Player of the Year, uh, and the kid is just awesome. So shout out to Mac McClung. A couple other results from the Big 12 SEC Challenge. Uh, speaking of the apology tour, I just did the Mac McClung apology. I do also want to go ahead and apologize to Mike White. By the way, big year for Torres. Big year for apologies for Torres. Uh, apologize to Shaka Smart about two or three weeks ago because, you know, they're having an incredible year. Obviously, he is out with COVID right now. I hope he's okay. Um, but I apologize to Shaka Smart. Uh, and then uh, apologize to Mac McClung. My voice just cracked. Sorry, it's a long show. Um, and apparently I'm going to apologize to Mike White right now. And as most of you know, I have had a very contentious uh, relationship with Mike White. And I've been critical of him. And to a degree, I, again, it's the Mac McClung thing. I don't think that I've been wrong. But as the information changes, as Mike White evolves as a coach, I have to give him credit where he's due. And in the not really thinking that I'm wrong situation, um, when you look at his time at Florida, here are his records. His best season was with Billy Donovan's players, 27-9 and nine in the second year. Since then, 21-13, and 20-16, and 19-12. Not saying that he has been bad by any stretch of the imagination during that time, but he consistently comes in with a team that's picked to finish second, third, fourth, third, second, whatever. In the SEC... They really struggle. They lose bad games out of conference. They figure it out about the middle of the season. And then they get into the tournament, but they have 11-12 losses. And so I've been very critical of him. But after watching his team win at West Virginia, I got to apologize. And I got to give him a ton of credit, at the very least, for what he has done this season with this program. Listen, you talk about National Coach of the Year. It's probably going to be Jawan Howard. It's probably going to be Shaka Smart. You talk about SEC Coach of the Year. It's probably going to be Nate Oates. I don't think anyone has done a better job than Mike White, though, with everything that's been thrown on his plate this season. And I think, obviously, it does start with the Keontae Johnson stuff. Very serious topic, very scary topic. I remember doing the show the day after it happened, and, and, and one, I'm just so thankful that Keontae Johnson appears to be okay, appears to be healthy. We don't know what his current status is. We don't know what his future status is, but he appears to be okay. He appears to be uh, that, that he will be able to live a normal life, whether he plays basketball or not remains to be seen. But then beyond that, 
once that happens, there's no playbook for it, right? There's no, uh, 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 there's nothing that a coach can do to prepare for that moment. And so it happened, and we're happy that Keontae Johnson is okay, but it doesn't take away from how incredible it was to see Mike White do what he did to keep this team together, keep them on the court, keep them organized, keep them moving forward in that scary time, in that scary moment in time. They did cancel a couple games, but since they've been back, they've actually been pretty good. But beyond just the Keontae Johnson stuff, he's had to deal with all sorts of other stuff too. And in a year where everybody's dealing with stuff, I think you could argue he's dealt with even more than most coaches. One's the Keontae Johnson stuff. But two, on top of that, um, you know, the last couple weeks, Colin Castleton, essentially his only big guy, has been in and out of the lineup. Beyond that, Scotty Lewis, highest rated recruit in the program, in and out of the lineup. And this guy has been constantly juggling his roster, constantly shuffling players in and out, getting production from guys that he didn't think he was going to get production from. And so I want to give him a ton of credit. They go to West Virginia, they win, and listen, uh, for the Florida fans listening, I got a couple that chirp at me all the time. I'm not trying to tear him down. I think West Virginia is kind of a weird team. I don't think they're the same since Oscar Shibway left. But I bring this up to very simply say I'm not taking anything away from Florida. It was an impressive win, and it caps an impressive two, two and a half, three weeks for Florida where they have now won four in a row. They beat Tennessee. They win at West Virginia. And look, as we're trying to figure out this pecking order in the SEC, I think Alabama is very clearly number one. I think after that you can make a case for Tennessee – for Florida, for LSU, but Florida's in that short conversation. This has been the best coaching job that Mike White has done all year. A couple other really quick notes from the SEC Big 12 Challenge. We'll talk conference tournaments and get out of here. Um, the first in terms of the SEC Big 12 Challenge is, I, you know, real quick, I'll mention Tennessee. I don't want to get too overexcited, but for the first time in a long time, it just felt like, okay, Tennessee is getting there. They're back. They're finally figuring it out. And I talked about it a lot on last week's episode, but when you looked at Tennessee six weeks ago, they were looking like a team that was potentially the third best team in college basketball behind Gonzaga and Baylor, and then they really struggled. And when they really struggled, it wasn't just in one area, but this elite defensive team wasn't playing good defense. They couldn't create any offense. And then beyond that, they just weren't playing with any energy. You watched them and they were going through the motions and it felt like they weren't enjoying themselves and it felt like they weren't very happy and it felt it just felt like a very bizarre team that was trying to figure itself out. And at least for one night, they got right against Kansas. One, I do think they were helped by the return of Jaden Springer, their five-star uh, freshman. He is a very important piece to what they do. Um, you know, 13 points, uh, it's his second game back. He played against Mississippi State, but I do think it is important to have him back. He is an important piece for that team. And then beyond that, uh, they just played with energy and heart and focus, and, and they acted like they wanted to be there, which is something they weren't really acting like over the last couple games. Uh, I just thought the energy was way up, and I think they're a team that maybe now can get some momentum. Don't want to overreact. Don't want to do the hot take, oh, they're back. We'll see. Three of their next four are on the road, and three of their next four are really tough. They play at Kentucky, Florida at home, and LSU on the road. Kentucky, probably not an NCAA tournament team at this point, but 
Never forget, they've already beaten LSU. They've already beaten Florida, so you know they can play. Florida, I just talked about. LSU, you know, is talented. So we will see what happens with Tennessee. A couple other notes from this weekend. Um, first one, shout out to Oklahoma, right? Oklahoma beats Alabama. Alabama was on that nine, 10 game winning streak, 9 0 in SEC play. Um, and when I look at this game, two things immediately jump out. First of all, there is no hot take on Alabama. Um, you know, they've gotten everybody's best shot for the last four, five, six weeks. They've beat everybody. And before you tell, oh, the SEC sucks. Well, Tennessee just beat K- Kansas. Uh, LSU could have beaten Texas Tech. Florida beat West Virginia. So those are pretty good teams. Alabama beat all of them, and they crushed some of them. So that's one. Two, I actually think there were some positives to take away for Alabama. They're still banged up. They still don't have a full roster. They got a big contribution from another player named Keon Ellis. So the possibility continues to exist that maybe, just maybe, they're actually pretty freaking good and better than people realize. Not not, not better than people realize, but they're getting contributions from more and more guys, which I think is a good thing. And then on the flip side, I just want to give credit to Oklahoma really quick. First of all, three straight wins over, frankly, top 10 teams I believe if if I if I remember correctly three straight wins over top 10 teams which is kind of insane to think about now one of them was against Kansas who frankly just isn't all that good Uh, but it it is still a top 10 win nonetheless Um, but you look at what they have done here over the last week or so Alabama was number nine three straight wins over top 10 teams And what was so impressive on Saturday, they did it without one of their best players, Austin Reeves, and they had other guys step up. And it's really funny with Oklahoma, right? Lon Kruger was another one I talked to in the offseason. And they had two guys on Saturday step up that they didn't even know were going to be eligible, right? And I think that's kind of a really funny kind of narrative in college basketball this season. There's so many guys across college basketball didn't even know if they were going to play. Jacob Toppin at Tennessee, who, or Jacob Toppin in Kentucky, who's actually playing really well for them. Um, you know, Mac McClung at Texas Tech. And they had two guys, Amoja Gibson, transfer from North Texas, and Elijah Harkless, transfer from Cal State Northridge, which is right down the road from where I live. Um, and they didn't know if those guys were going to play. Well, with Austin Reeves out, those two not only played, but they were awesome on uh, on Saturday with Emoja Gibson scoring 12 and Elijah Harkless scoring 14. And so when I look at Oklahoma, I do think that this is a team now they could potentially play themselves into the conversation of, you know, I, 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 I think they're a quiet team. You know, I mean, listen, first of all, they've beaten three straight top 10 teams. Now, a little bit of a caveat, Kansas has won, Texas without Shaka Smart. But, I mean, when you start talking about a team that's going to be a six seed, a seven seed, that could potentially be in the Sweet 16, be in the Elite Eight, I think Oklahoma is one. But I'm impressed by their ability to adapt without Austin Reeves and get that win. By the way, it doesn't get any easier for Oklahoma, which still has Baylor and West Virginia here in the coming weeks. Last real game from the Big 12 SEC Challenge. I don't know that there's a ton to take away from Baylor-Auburn. Baylor's awesome. By the way, Mark Few apparently is still trying to schedule an out-of-conference game. That would be huge for college basketball. I hope that happens. But let's get into the last one that I want to talk about. That's Oklahoma State and Arkansas. And that one is interesting from two perspectives. First of all, from Oklahoma State's perspective, I think we now know why Cade Cunningham is going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft. This kid coming off a COVID pause, hadn't played in two weeks, comes in by technicality, I believe even came off the bench, finishes with 21 points, seven rebounds, five assists, 
three steals and hits the last six points of the game to beat Arkansas. If there was any doubt about who Cade Cunningham is, what he is, what he's capable of doing, we saw it today, or we saw it on Saturday against Arkansas. And I think on the flip side for Arkansas, it's an equally devastating loss. Um, you know, I know there was Arkansas fans were mad about some of the rotations and stuff, Connor Vanover playing late. I, I'm not here to break down who played when and what does it all mean. But I do think now that it's just another crippling, crushing loss for Arkansas in a game that I don't want to say they absolutely had to win, but this one would have been huge. They came into the game at, at 13 and 4 overall. But as I talked about on last episode, they didn't play any power teams out of conference. Uh, prior to the SEC start of the prior to the SEC portion of the schedule, and the reason why is simple. Eric Musselman actually talked about it on this show. He basically said, "Look, every out of conference game, we want to get games in, and so we want teams that can drive here without taking a plane, that don't have to stay overnight in a hotel. We just want to get games in." So they had North Texas, they had Abilene Christian, and they had originally scheduled Oklahoma and Louisville, but obviously with COVID, those two games were canceled. But I bring it up because Arkansas's schedule in the out-of-conference was lacking, and this was the last really big game and big opportunity that they had to get right, um, you know, before, before uh, you know, the heart of SEC play in the end of the regular season. This was their last big opportunity, and really, frankly, their only big opportunity to get a big out-of-conference win, and they simply couldn't take advantage. And so now you look at them, they're 13-5, and 5-4 five, five and four overall, and there are still plenty of big games left on the schedule. Play at Kentucky, at Missouri, who they already lost to, Florida at home, Bama and LSU at home, and so you talk about some marquee games and some marquee games in Bud Walton Arena. The opportunities are absolutely still there. Not ready to pour dirt on their grave. This was the first game that they lost essentially at full strength because all their other losses came without their star, Justin Smith. But the bottom line remains that Arkansas really, really, really could have used that win. Instead, they take the loss. But credit to Oklahoma State, Cade Cunningham is awesome. All right, let's get into the last big topic of the show. And frankly, I think it might be, to be blunt, Maybe the biggest topic in college sports right now that I don't know that most people realize is actually a big topic. And what I mean by that is this, is that people in college basketball that, that work in it, administrators, coaches, players, parents are talking about it. I don't know that the people who just sit on the couch like you, like me, fans, things of that nature, understand just how big of a deal this is. And I'm talking about conference tournaments. And what I'm talking about is the structure of conference tournaments and the reality that I believe that conference tournaments, to be perfectly blunt, are going to look a lot different than they ever have. I think there's the possibility that many of the best teams in college basketball might actually opt out of their conference tournaments. This is a huge story. It's big. And what's crazy about it is I don't think that there's an easy solution for the conferences, for the teams, for the NCAA. And that's why I want to talk about it now. Because I do think, you know, one of the things that I always try to do on this show is I always try to not only tell you what is going to happen right now, what just happened, but what could happen down the road, what you need to be watching out for. And this strikes me as one of those things. Before we go forward, for your longtime listeners, you guys know I love the conference tournaments, right? I love conference tournament championship week. I would argue that it is actually, it's actually my favorite sports week of the year. I know a lot of people like opening day in Major League Baseball. I know a lot of people like the first weekend in the NCAA tournament. But I always say the great thing about Conference Championship Week is 
you get those best teams playing two, three, four times. And in addition to them playing two, three, four times, they're playing teams that are that they're familiar with competitive games, equal talent. Whereas if you have a team that's a number one seed in an NCAA tournament, they might beat their first opponent by 40. Conference tournament, they're probably not beating anybody by 40, and they're playing more games, and so I love conference tournaments. But I also think that we're going to be looking at a season where many of the best teams, the Gonzagas, the Baylors, the Michigans, the Villanovas, I think there's a possibility that they opt out. I'll get to that in a minute, but before I do, I do want to give some positive news because positive vibes only. I don't think that conference tournaments as a whole are going to cease to exist this season. Now, look, could one conference, two conference, five conferences cancel their conference tournaments? It's possible. I don't think it's going to be very many, though, and here's why. First of all, for the big conferences, it's all about money, right? It's all about the Benjamins. Um, When you look at the big conferences, it comes down to the bottom line of dollars and cents, and there is too much money to be lost to not play these conference tournaments, even if there are no fans in the stands. Why is there money to be lost? Well, you have TV commitments, corporate commitments, and when you look at all that, and then, oh, by the way, on top of that, I should mention, the more teams you can get into the NCAA tournament, the more money there is to be made. And so that is why conference tournaments in the power conferences are going to be played. One, because there's a lot of money to be made off TV. There's a lot of money to be made off sponsorships. And the more games that your teams play, the more likely it is you get some more teams into the NCAA tournament. And the only way to get more teams in the NCAA tournament is if you have teams on the bubble, it's to let them play more games, right? So you think about the Big Ten. The Big Ten might have three or four teams on the bubble going into champ week. Well, get them to Indy or wherever the conference tournament is. Let them all play. Let a few of them pick up some wins and maybe play their way into the NCAA tournament. Same with the ACC, same with the SEC, Big 12, Big Ten, etc. Even for the small conferences, I do think there is a reason to play. A lot of these conferences don't make as much if money at all but I do think there's reasons to be played and I think one of them is first of all for for many of these teams it's the only postseason that they're going to play and so even good teams that you know are second third fourth fifth in the league they're not going to make the NCAA tournament if they don't win it and so why are we going to punish them by not allowing them to have a postseason at all I think it was the America East I saw their conference commissioner, maybe it was the A-10, basically say like, look, we want all our teams, we want to give them a reward for the end of the season for getting to the finish line, and that's a conference tournament with an opportunity to play your way into the NCAA tournament. Beyond that, I'll be honest, there's some conferences, and I know this because I talked to some people this weekend, they don't even know who their best team is, and there's no way to know because the schedules are so imbalanced. And so I was talking to somebody from a small one-bid league And he basically said to me, point blank, he goes, we have no idea who our best team is. We got some teams that have missed seven, eight, nine games. We have some teams that have played a full schedule. And so to not play a conference tournament, even at the small schools, and to award the regular season champ, well, what if the regular season champ is five and one in conference at the end of the regular season, and you got another team that's 10 and two? Well, do you give it to the one that has the better win-loss record, the better win-loss percentage, or the one that's played more games? And so for a lot of these small conferences that have had to miss a lot of games, this is the only way to adequately build a conference champion and find a conference champion and put forth your best team come the NCAA tournament. On the flip side, though, I do think there are real questions to ask if you're one of those programs that's really, really, really good and really, frankly, doesn't need the conference tournament to improve your resume. It might only be a few teams, right? 
I still think most teams are going to need a conference tournament, uh, whether it's to get into the tournament, improve your seeding, get hot, get momentum, whatever. But there are some that there's going to be no benefit to playing in a conference tournament, right? I mean, Baylor, you know, everyone's talking about Gonzaga going undefeated. I mean, Baylor is getting pretty darn close here. Baylor is getting pretty close to the finish line uh, and looking really, really, really good in the process. They're 16-0. I, I don't think they've won a game by less than eight points. They're going to finish the regular season. I mean, at worst, what, 25-2, and 26-1? They're going to be a number one seed. And so does it make sense for them to go to a conference tournament where all that can happen is they catch the coronavirus and they either are missing players for the NCAA tournament or maybe, God forbid, in a worst-case scenario, they can't play the NCAA tournament at all. Is there any benefit at all to them going to a conference tournament other than that guys want to play games, right? It's the same with Michigan. Michigan, I mean, difference between number one versus number two seed, does it really matter? I don't know. Probably not. Is it worth it? Probably not. To go back to the Baylor thing, to go back to Michigan, Virginia, Villanova, whoever. Remember, there's no geogra- there's no geographical advantage in the NCAA tournament this year, so it's not like, oh, if, if, you win the, if you're the number one overall seed, you get to be closest to home. No, everyone's going to Indy. On top of that, this is something I haven't heard anybody else talk about. The NCAA has put in a bunch of new rules for travel and for a lot of different variables when it comes to the NCAA tournament. So why do I bring this up? It is because one of the rules when it comes to the NCAA tournament is that teams that are playing in conference tournaments, and everybody in theory is going to play in conference tournaments, um, once you lose, they don't want you going back to campus. So they want you to stay put in your conference tournament site until it's time to leave for the NCAA tournament. And to me, that's an important variable as well. Because think about it from like Baylor's perspective, right? Baylor's the number one seed in the Big 12. They're set to tip off first, first game, noon central time in Kansas City on Thursday. Let's say worst case scenario, they lose. Well, that's not the worst case scenario, but let's say they lose that game. Now, now, Baylor's got to sit in a hotel for three days before they can go to Indy. So do they want to do they want to risk going somewhere losing and then being stuck there before they have to go to Indy on top of all the virus scares which would be the case if they decide to come. And so it's a really fascinating scenario because it's one of these deals that I don't know what the NCAA can do. I don't know what these conferences can do, right? You can't force a team to come to a conference tournament if they don't want to come they're not going to come. It's going to piss off the TV partners. It's going to piss off the conference. It's going to piss off the sponsors. You can't force somebody to come if you don't want to. I think on the flip side, you can't cancel the tournament for the reasons that I said. Teams are going to need to play those games to either get in games, determine a champion, get extra games for teams that are on the bubble. So you can't cancel the tournament. And I don't think you can also give the automatic bid to the best team in the regular season because then what incentive do most of those teams have to come to conference tournaments, right? Like just think about it from the simplest team to think about, Kentucky or Michigan State. Kentucky probably isn't going to make the NCAA tournament if they don't win the SEC tournament. If Alabama and Tennessee decide to opt out and the SEC says, well, we're just going to give the automatic bid to Alabama because they're the regular season champ, what motivation does Kentucky have to go to the SEC tournament? None because you can't play your way in. And so it's a fascinating scenario where I don't know what the NCAA does. And oh, by the way, there's also the flip side. There's the flip side where everybody gets pissed off if, say, Gonzaga 
goes to decides to opt out of their conference tournament and somebody else wins the automatic bid in their league that wasn't going to go to the NCAA tournament. Then he got everybody pissed off because a bubble team just lost a spot because Gonzaga didn't show up. So it's just one of these things, right, where, as I said a minute ago, I try to present you the biggest stories in sports, college sports usually, how it happened, what you need to know, and then what is potentially going to happen going forward. And this is one where there's no good answer. There's no obvious answer. And sometimes there are really difficult questions with a really obvious answer, right? Um, you know, the, the uh, spring sports are canceled. What do we do? It sucks. Bad problem. Well, we just give everybody an extra year. Easy answer. But this one, I don't know what you do. Because like I said, you can't give the automatic bid to a team that doesn't show up because then nobody else is going to show up. You can't make a team come that doesn't want to come. Um, and if teams don't come, it's going to piss off teams from all over the country, right? Bubble teams in the SEC, the Big 12, the Pac-12. How about the Mountain West? The Mountain West has four teams that might be on the bubble come Selection Sunday. Imagine if one of those bids gets lost because Gonzaga doesn't show up at their conference tournament or Houston doesn't show up at their conference tournament or whatever. But I'm just telling you, this is a huge story. I'm probably going to write about it a little bit at Kentucky Sports Radio this week, but I am just telling you, this is a massive, massive, massive story. All right, that's it. I'm out of here. Long show, fun show. Hope you guys enjoyed. Uh, but that's it for today's Aerator Sports Podcast. Before we get out of here, please make sure that you're subscribed. iTunes, the podcast, Addict App, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aerator Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Uh, uh, you know, make sure you rate, review, share, do all the stuff that you always do. And finally, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Uh, by the way, a couple good guests coming up this week if, if things go as planned. Tom Hart from the SEC Network hopefully will join me on Wednesday. Uh, Matt Doherty former head coach at North Carolina. I'm hoping to join me Thursday. We'll talk a little Duke, Duke Carolina. Their first game is this coming weekend. That's all. I will be back Wednesday. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I'll be back soon, party people. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.